Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's the Wonky Show. Annual complaints figures are out from the OIA. We'll crunch the numbers. Uh, responses are starting to come in on English HE reform. We'll look at what the sector's saying. Plus, there's stuff on information sharing and student suicide. And Michelle Donnellan's been sabre-rattling on in-person teaching again. It's all coming up. Most of the time, that might not be in a lecture theatre. Um, and when students say, I want to be back on campus... It seems to me that a lot of ministers and commentators are reading that as, I want to be back in the lecture theatre. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, I want to be back on campus. And that's for a whole range of reasons. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and here to help us boom-bang-a-bang our way into this week's euphoric HE policy news, three top-flight wonks. Uh, in Gravesend, Selena Bolingbrook is an HE consultant. Selena, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, I think my highlight of the week, actually, was a very traditional bank holiday, sat on the sofa for 10 hours watching the uh, snooker final. With Brilliant. Ronnie Rocket pulling it uh, home for a seventh time. A bank holiday sports special that survives even into 2022. Great stuff. And in Tamworth, Laurie Phipps is the senior research lead at JISC. Laurie, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, I had a fantastic day out seeing the David Lisborne exhibition at the Herbert Museum in Coventry. Um, it's just superb. What, you can, like, what, who, who is who is who who is what with with the what now what he, he's uh he's he describes himself as a living work of art um and he basically had uh, a whole load of his costumes on show filling the top floor of the herbert in coventry um and the costumes were just amazing and he dresses like this every day Oh, well, fantastic. We'll put details of that in the show notes. And somewhere in the southwest, David Kernahan is Wonky's associate editor. DK, your highlight of the week, please. Well, you know how I enjoy your uh, local radio DJ stylings on the, the podcast. I actually got to interface with an actual local radio DJ over the weekend. I was um, I was uh, playing guitar behind my friend Madeline, who has written some songs, and she was doing them on the radio. It was all rather lovely. Traffic and travel next. So, yes, we start this week with complaints. The Office of the Independent Adjudicator has published its annual report. And, Selena, it looks like a year overshadowed by COVID. Yes, uh, another year uh, overshadowed by COVID. Uh, So the annual report was um, out this week. Another record, uh, because this is a increasing trend. So 6% increase on 2020, but actually... There has been an upward trend since 2017. Um, about a third of the complaints that were received related to the pandemic. Um, and uh, I think it's always important to remember that, you know, what we see that comes through to the OIA is absolutely the end point of what will have been a long, long process for the complainant, uh, given that OIA only pick up complaints once the internal dispute process has been exhausted. 
Um, there have been sort of, you know, a lot of pickup in the press around this uh, publication of the report. Um, just to give you a couple of the kind of headlines. So NUS were quoted as saying that students were at breaking point. Uh, UK uh, pointed out that it was only a small percentage of the total population and the majority of students had a world-class education. And the Daily Mail immediately linked it to online tuition sparked surging complaints. Um, so I think that kind of basically across those three quotes sort of says it all. Um, I think probably the, the new things that are in here for us, um, there is again a, an overrepresentation of postgraduate students generally in complaints. And I think that, you know, it's interesting to pick beneath the dynamics of what is driving that. Uh, and this year for the first time, um, OIA has introduced new large group complaint additional rules, something that I suspect they will be uh, using a whole lot more in the future. A uh, couple of uh, great articles up on the Wonky website, one from yourself, Jim, uh, which I think, you know, really starts to dig behind what's going on with complaints as a system and another from uh, Ben and Felicity from the OIA perspective. DK, the, uh, obviously, the, you know, one of the points that Selena kind of highlights here is statistically, it, it, the, the, counting the number of complaints that tumbles into OIA doesn't really tell us a lot, does it? No, it uh, tells us almost nothing at all. I'd like to start by saying, in fact, that the announcement of these uh, figures represents really good news for the sector. It means that students know about the OIA. Uh, they know about the circumstances under which they can escalate a complaint to that and that they are increasingly they are getting satisfaction because of it so all of this this is where you and michelle donnellan are uh, are at one dk (laughs) absolutely we completely agree on many things well on one thing and this is the thing that we agree on um so she has been it has to be said doing a sterling job um going um round the sector and the media encouraging students to take complaints to the ombudsman if um, it's, if they don't get the response that they deserve to get from their, um, university. It is an incredibly, uh, positive thing that students have got a single place they can, um, do. I mean, in my day, they had to write a letter to the Queen, which was generally not as effective. And the, the, um, if you read the report, you can see the sensible way in which, uh, the OIA is, um, dealing with student uh, uh, complaints. It's not a lot of students, as Selena just uh, uh, pointed out, that are getting to this stage. The vast majority of problems students face during their studies are solved at a university level. And the vast majority of students don't actually have any trouble at all. They just sail through their course and they manage. Although, but, hold on, DK. Do we know... Well, do, do we, both of those two assertions... Yeah, we know we don't know that, do we? Well, we can only <laughs> talk about the complaints we can see. Um, we can't reach <laughs> exactly. into the heads of undergraduate students and find out when they're upset or or actually when they should be upset or when they're told to be upset because they're um, getting online learning rather than sitting in a cramped lecture theatre like what they paid for. 
Um, these are the complaints that uh, students have felt are serious enough to take on to actually um, get them um, resolved, to get them satisfaction. Obviously, any university is going to be striving to give students the best possible experience they can. It doesn't always work. And what I think these figures mean are that in the odd occasions where it doesn't work, students are able to get uh, satisfaction, basically. Laurie, one of the things that kind of comes up in this that uh, both um, Ben and Felicity from OIA raise in their blog is this is this idea that there might be a whole bunch of students, particularly disabled students, who would just find this incredibly long process of complaining internally, appealing internally, getting a letter, going to the OIA, just exhausting. You know, the chances of a student lasting that long to get their complaint resolved are low, aren't they? Uh, yeah, I mean, when you look at a disabled student, for example, who has got a problem in the first year, it might be they've graduated by the time they get any kind of resolution to a problem. Um, but that's been the case for as long as I've worked in HE with disabled students. And almost as long as that, they've had rights to actually have um, their, their issues resolved. So it's not really changing. The issue is, is you know, streamlining the processes, not just at OAF at the OIA we've got to actually get things happening quicker for those precarious students in the institutions if a student tells you there's a problem it needs to be fixed almost you know before you know before it becomes a bigger problem and you know sadly I, I think we've got a problem with with the streamlining of those processes um, but I think by and large especially during the pandemic in a lot of institutions we did see um, the attainment gap for disabled students closing and I think that's a, a positive thing. I think it also speaks well to the fact that the systems about going online and providing a good education um, has, has been borne out. We've actually improved some of the learning outcomes for these precarious students during the pandemic. Mm. Selena, one of the things I, I do worry about that you'll have, that you'll have seen me raise in, in in the blog I, I posted up is that you know it, you know if in the olden days when almost all the complaints were academic appeals they were they generally tended to be individual issues but if if now OIA is seeing a larger number of kind of collective consumer style complaints where groups of students are complaining about something that's gone wrong for everyone. Isn't it a problem that the only people who get resolution are the people who sign the letter and or get to the OIA? Shouldn't we have resolutions for everyone that was impacted? Or is it that we should only give resolutions to the people who bothered to sign the letter? Yeah, I think that is a problem. And I think it also reflects the positioning of complaints, uh, you know, within the system. So um, I think... It's, it's, it's partly about the culture, I think, within higher education. And I think this has been the way for many, many years. Um, that actually complaints are rarely seen as a source of learning, largely because they are taken through a very technical process. We don't encourage students to complain. And I think that actually we could use another word, but what we would be uh, much better to do is to encourage every first year student in their first term to bring us a bit of negative feedback, something that they're not happy with, that we could have a go at resolving. Because it isn't a good system, it isn't a good system that allows students to languish for years feeling unhappy, dissatisfied. Uh, neither is it good for the learning environment, for the university, for the staff, when students 
takes, you know, the complaint takes a long time from the student's perspective. And actually, there is, I think, quite often what you see when you read end of year institutional complaints report, the same themes come up year on year on year. And that suggests to me that there isn't a huge amount of organisational learning. And I think in healthy organisations, complaints should be seen as an integral part of the quality assurance and quality improvement processes. Yeah, and it's and, and, and DK, it's notable, I think, that you know there's not there's not much of a mention of complaints or learning from complaints in OFS's new uh, quality arrangements. No, quite the opposite, um, and it would make a lot more sense, especially as the OFS still looks likely to get the ability to handle complaints itself in terms of uh, free speech. I did actually have a look in uh, the OA. OAIA report for any evidence of complaints about free speech from students and I couldn't see any so I'm not sure what's going on with that I mean maybe OFS will get lots but yeah we do need to get better at learning from these complaints at the, 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 uh, I think this happens uh, better at a module level or um, a course level if you get immediate student feedback then that's something that can be addressed quickly when you start talking about entire institutional processes um, I mean Firstly, if a student problem has been escalated to the level of an institution, it's probably a fairly serious problem and it needs to be addressed. It's probably affecting, as we've said, other students that have not yet complained. So, I mean, yeah, institutions do need to get sharper at um, learning from this and especially learning from the feedback they get in the judgments from the OIA. Well, fascinating stuff. Lots of stuff as ever on the site about this. Do take a look. Now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, I'm Kathy Mitchell, Head of Market Insight at Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh. I'm also a current Learning Science Exchange Fellow with New America and the Jacobs Foundation. I've written about the ways that we, as universities, can impact early years development with a view to widening access to post-school education options. There's lots of research that shows how the future educational performance of children can be predicted by the level they are at by age five and that children have discounted certain routes and professions by as young as age seven. The piece highlights some of the excellent existing initiatives in this space, but these are often focused on particular characteristics such as gender or focused on particular professions. The piece makes a case for the more general role universities can play in this, in expanding the ambition and potential of some of the children currently least likely to go to university at the stage of their life where the most difference can be made. Now, in the week we're recording, it's the deadline for sector responses to the consultations on English HE reform. And DK, responses are starting to emerge. Yeah, letters have been flooding in, which is always good news. Uh, the deadline is the 6th of May, which is depending on, on when you're listening to the podcast, either this coming Friday or last Friday. Um the, the consultations themselves are the ones about the lifelong loan entitlement and about the reforms to student finance. To take the two in that order, the response about the, the, the lifelong loan entitlement is as it always has been. Basically, everybody thinks it's broadly a good idea, but the devil is going to be in the implementation as we still have the barest minimum information about the way this is actually going to be implemented. Um, a lot of the responses have been just asking for more information, just asking for like particular issues. I mean, the, 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 
the University Alliance are asking about admission systems for the LLE. If you're just going to apply for one module, how does that work with respect to UCAS? How does that work with respect to just um, rocking up to the front um, gate of your local university and signing up? Um, and how do we record this? They're asking for a national learner record, something which feels uncannily like something we had back in 2014 and then closed. Um, meanwhile, over on the student financing, the Russell Group have been complaining about the fact that the the unit of resource is projected to drop in Israel terms value very sharply over the uh, coming years. And that is obviously going to affect the amount of things universities can do, the amount of staff they can pay, etc. It all gets pretty horribly depressing when you think about it. It's interesting that this is coming from the Russell Group, who have seen the largest amounts of student growth in previous years. Um, obviously, the uh, debate about the cost of educating a student is about to re-erupt and that this is going to happen. It's also nice to see them warning against the scrapping of uh, foundation years, which is not strictly what's in the consultation. The idea is that foundation years will be funded at a lower level, a level comparable to, say, the access to HD qualification. Uh but there is concern about that, and these measures are particularly going to have an impact on uh, disadvantaged students. If we move across to the minimum eligibility requirements, which is another part of this same consultation, the Institute for Fiscal Studies has noted that um, restricting um, university uh, study finance to applicants that have achieved a certain level at level two qualifications in English and math or level three qualifications overall. It's going to disproportionately affect disadvantaged students and students from non-traditional backgrounds who are exactly the kinds of people, if we're thinking about the leveling up agenda, um, that we need to be in encouraging to consider study at higher education of whatever format as being something that can um, benefit them and their communities. Uh, so we don't really know much about the demand for modular study. This is another theme that has cropped up a lot about the place. Uh, but it just feels like there's a lot of uh, policy happening. All of it seems to be pulling in slightly different directions. There's a piece up on the site on Friday that looks at the minimum eligibility requirements in the face of the outcome stuff, the B3 stuff that the Office of Students are currently analysing consultation responses on. Uh, so everything is very much up in the air at the moment. Selena, one of the things that uh, I thought was, I mean, grimly amusing in the Russell Group response was uh, this idea that we need, what's the phrase? Uh, we need a new funding formula to maintain quality and ensure a fair deal for the public purse. And it's like, wasn't that what Orga was, was supposed to do? Yeah, yeah. And I, I think, you know, um, 
Yeah, having worked with some of those universities over the last year, I think I'm well aware that in certain high-cost teaching areas, um, it has now got to the point on some courses where every student they take on represents a loss to the university. And from a kind of a regional, um, in particular, a regional skill supply, regional profession supply perspective, that should be a worrying thing for all of us. Um, but I would also reflect, I think, that, you know, I've done a, a lot of work in the FE sector. And I think that the the fair funding deal, you know, we, we really don't ever seem to get sort of to the bones of what drives the cost base. Because why is it? Let, let's look at the foundation year versus access to HE. You know, I could go and do an access to HE course at Middlesbrough College that would cost between three and four grand a year. I would get a different loan system for that. And I would be in college for three days a week. Yeah. Now, if I did a foundation year um, at a university, there are many that would be charging me the full 9,200. And I would be lucky if I would be in for two full days a week. And I think from a student perspective, and indeed, I think, you know, um, from, from, from the own staff's perspective, it's not clear what those differences are between those courses, between those student experience, and certainly between their outcomes, because both are likely to gain me entry onto a degree. You know, both have actually really good success rates in terms of enabling students to progress to a, to a degree. So, 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 DK, you'll know what what is the difference. Come on. Um, this would be uh, the contribution that an, a university needs to make in terms of every student in terms of centralised resources. So, the difference, the main difference between going into an FE uh, college and going into a university is in a university you've got an absolutely massive library with subscriptions to every journal you could possibly need to read that you've got uh state of the art up to date um laboratories kit that you've got um a wrap around overacting overarching system of student support that deals with anything you might face with um in an FE college you don't get that same experience FE colleges do deliver great courses, but it is a different thing. Uh, the, there is an attraction, especially for younger students, that they would like to see themselves as university students. So they tend to be more interested in the foundation years because that means that they're already having the institute, the student experience. And that in some ways is uh even though it's more expensive for them in the long run it is something that they value um the the cost but, differential but, but DK, between that's, and, well, but just us that's very interesting right from my point of view. so so you know the, the, the reality is that the foundation year or access to he year in an fe college are about getting people ready to do the kind of main undergraduate degree program right it, you know on on one level the government hasn't got huge amounts of money. It is taxpayers' money to some extent, and to some extent it's student debt money and so on. It, it, it is legitimate, isn't it, to say, well, maybe there's a way of doing that prep thing in a, in a cheaper way in an FE college. It is, it, is, yeah. it is legitimate to say that, even though Absolutely it might not be to the preference of lots of people in our sector. Yeah, I mean, student choice always is the issue. I mean, that's ex 
exactly what August said. The Orga panel said that there are cheaper ways of doing this preparation for university. But I mean, one of the things we know from access and participation is that the traditional route into university, the A-levels, is not suitable for quite a lot of young people who would otherwise really benefit at university. And that the, there are some, for instance, who may be held back by their home environment. It's um, a desperately sad state of affairs that some students at A-level do live in unstable homes where it's difficult for them to find a space to work. And sometimes moving away to university is the best way to unlock that academic potential. It does all come back to student choice and it does all come back to how much of this student choice is uh, the government willing to issue loans against. Uh, from memory, there's not much of a difference in outcomes from students who have done foundation year than access to HE and students who haven't. So the ability to recoup the loan is probably the same there. But um, it's all about interpretation. It's all about the way in which the government would prefer to see people enter um, higher education study. Well, that's a very good point, DK. So, so Laurie, let me ask you this question. So, you know, we were talking about um, actually various communities around the West Midlands. Three of us are on from the West Midlands this morning. You may have noticed listeners with these kind of strange otherworldly accents. Um, <laughs> the, you know, we were talking about various communities in the West Midlands before we hit record this morning. And one of my questions is, so as well as this question about whether or not someone really does want to do a module, in HE all on its own. Is, is it just me? Or is the phrase lifelong loan entitlement really terrible in order to generate the sort of demand that the government has in its mind? You know, who, who from my, back in Walsall in my own town, he's wandering around going, I can't wait to take out a lifelong that, loan. That terrifies me. Um, I, I was thinking about all the good things that the that this is trying to do. You know, so I'm I'm trying to be really positive about all the things that this would do. I did a, an access to higher education course. I come from a non traditional background. I didn't go to university until my mid twenties, um, and you know, after having a, a career in the military, I was like, I don't know what to do. I didn't have a clue what I was going to do, but I was able to go and access, uh, you know, an access to higher education course. Um, I wasn't able to move around the country, um, and I didn't have to pay for it. That was great. Um, and then I was able to go to university on a grant, and that was how I actually changed you know, who I am. Now, if I was to try and do that, I'd be looking at the debt profile of a lifelong loan. It terrifies me. And even if it isn't you know, a lot of money, the idea of it, the language of it, just absolutely would terrify me and put me off. And I think... The language about how we do this now is is going to put people off going to, you know, changing what they are and what they want to do. And I don't want to think about this in terms of credentials, but just getting out of a situation they're in to do something different, which is the intention, I think, behind this. The, the way that we describe it and the way that we put debt on people right now is just going to, I think it's just going to put people off going. It, I find it very depressing. And, and actually, DK, just while we're on that, we haven't really seen analyses like this yet, have we? Because we haven't really seen, you know, details that you would like to see on, on the LLE. But but if, if the terms and conditions of student loans kind of exist as they are, but just get divided into modules, the irony here is that someone in their 40s taking out, you know, the lifelong loan entitlement for one module... It is, it's more likely to pay the whole of that back 
than your average undergraduate who, uh, you know, might only pay back half of it when they take out a loan in their 20s. There's, there's a bunch of injustices that are going to emerge, aren't there, unless someone does some radical surgery to the student loan system. There are many, many, many issues. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about the impact in the national accounts. If you listen to certain people, this whole thing is a way of um, encouraging students to go away from the traditional three-year full-time undergraduate study and do something else, and thus uh, cutting the cost of student loans. The problem is, if you're doing a module here, a module there, each of those modules is likely to have less overall impact in on your uh, salary and your uh, ability to repay the loan. This might end up being substantially more expensive for the government. And because we've not done any sensible kind of, uh, at least not that I've seen published, any sensible kind of customer survey, how Very would little demand modelling in here, isn't there? No, very, very little. There's not. I mean, if you're launching a, um, a product, if you're launching a new brand of tea or something, you know, you'd... You talk to the people who might buy it, who might get involved and think, okay, what do you want for this? What are you going to do with this? How, how much do you reckon you might buy? When? What kind of thing do you want? Sorry, I was just going to say that there will be students of the future who take on the kind of triple crown of education loan finance from the advanced learner loans for level three to the traditional SLC for their degree and then topping up with an LLL. E loan for later life. I mean, mm. that's astonishing, isn't it, really? Yeah. I mean, as it stands, um, every applicant has access to four years of fee loans and uh, uh, if eligible uh, and a P- for maintenance. Uh, and a couple of PG loans, if they really go for it. Yeah, yeah. The PG <laughs> loans are all in there, yeah. And then we... Imagine, uh, imagine, imagine the figure at the bottom right-hand corner of your statement. <laughs> So everything that's advanced learn loans over level three is going to go into this LLE. It's going to become the one funding system to rule them all, which is why it's absolutely imperative that we get it right and we get the incentives right, we get the repayments right, and we get the fact that it needs to at least make some pretense or attempt at covering the actual cost of teaching that particular student at that particular moment. Uh, we need to get that right as well. There's just so much work to do. I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing a bill in the Queen's speech next week that's going to address some bits of this. The stuff we were promised last March, if anyone's keeping score in DFE, I'm, I don't think anybody really is anymore. But yeah, it, it, that's what we're waiting for. We need to get the detail of this right. So all of the responses have just been, yes, but what about this? What about this? And we just don't have the answers. And that's hugely frustrating that we're consulting on something as potentially fantastic as LLE, but we're doing it in this uh, largely cat-handed way. Now, all this season, we're working with the Association of University Administrators to bring you dispatches from the desks of hard-working HE professionals across the country. This week, we caught up with Sally McGill, Chief Financial Officer and Deputy Chief Executive at Staffordshire University to talk environmental sustainability. I'm working on issues around sustainability and asking questions about whether topics have been forgotten because I'm the Executive Lead for Sustainability for the University. We have pushed forward on the sustainability agenda during the pandemic and we have continued to expand our teaching and learning offer around climate awareness and sustainability. And we have planned and delivered carbon net zero construction projects during that time. During the pandemic, however, it was difficult sometimes to keep up the the main messages. 
as we come back onto campus, we are having to make some readjustments. People may not be wanting to go back onto public transport. We certainly know that from a survey that we did recently. We've also seen a higher use, again, of single-use plastics, people wanting to use wipes, people not wanting to use reusable cups, going back to plastic cups. And we know we need to make some adjustments to get back to where we were. But those are minor details, and the high-level goals definitely remain the same. The best thing we've done recently is the opening of our new nursery and forest school. It's not just about the building, which is a, a wooden construction. It's a carbon net zero building, and it uses earth tubes to both heat and cool the building. And it also has solar panels on the roof. It's also about the concept that we've built it on the edge of a nature reserve, and we're able to link into the new Department for Education sustainability strategy. And we'll be running a pilot for the Climate Leaders Scheme. So we'll be helping school children to appreciate the natural world and to improve the biodiversity of their own school environments. The biggest challenge at the moment is that we're planning for a new student village. That's a residential development. And it's a 50-year project. And it will be another ambitious construction using wood. So we're working with a multifunction design team using emerging technologies. And we're hoping to go out to procurement in the summer. Challenges come at the moment very much because of the economic environment. Inflation, availability of materials, availability of skills to be able to complete, complete a project of this type. And we were looking for partners who have the same vision to achieve this carbon net zero scheme. My top tip for others working on this issue be ambitious in your vision, but be pragmatic in your delivery. Sally will be speaking at the AUA National Conference at the University of Manchester on the 7th to the, to the 8th of July. You can find a link in the show notes or find out more at aua.ac.uk. Now, there's a report out on information sharing and student suicide this week. Laurie, what was in um, there? So this is the British Association for Counselling and Psychotherapy. Um, and it's it, 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 it did a survey with its members that work in uh, universities. Um, it, it, there's an awful lot of information in there. Um, I should say that only 10% of its members responded. So it's based on 78 responses, um, and it's a mix of responses from, from where people are working. There's some really surprising things in there for me. Um, one of it is the lack of coherent policies around student suicides. Um, and th that, for me, is, is, is one of the big areas that needs to change. And I think that comes through strongly in the report um, in asking the practitioners about what sort of things they're dealing with so they've come out with a set of principles they want better information sharing they want uh decisions to be informed by the evidence they want people to work with the nhs which is a bit of a surprise to me that they actually aren't joined up these systems um, but again a lot of that is about the data collection and how the case management systems work around suicides so they're actually looking at saying okay so what is the appropriate way of doing this what does cpd look like how do we collect the data um there's not i don't even think there's a common code of practice across the sector from the report um and so you know, when you read through the report, there's some really um, worrying things in there. And there was one quote which says, at my uni, the term case by case is used by managers to mask the fact that there's no coherent policy. Um, and I've heard that elsewhere in terms of how, you know, we work with, for example, disabled students. Oh, we de deal with it on a case by case basis. And again, it hides the fact that there are no policies for some of these things. I think, first of all, one suicide is too many. Um, this is actually asking uh, the practitioners what their awareness of the suicides are. Um, and of course, we're only talking about suicides that complete. 
so by actually taking their own life there's an awful lot of other data that needs to be collected and shared um how do we share that data and this report highlights all of those things um and i say that the main thing for me is that the lack of coherence around it uh selena one of the things that uh, strikes me about this i mean we were talking earlier about learning from complaints but uh, you know it, it, when there is a a student suicide i've certainly come across cases before where it's incredibly difficult to do organizational learning because you know the bottom line is that you know that the, the the insurer or the corporate lawyer is saying well we can't do that in public because that would in, intimate that we accept some level of liability and and it seems to me that universities are kind of in a bind where you know they won't want to accept liability for stuff that reasonably isn't their responsibility but they will want to do all they can to prevent suicide and it seems to me those two things don't necessarily interface very well yeah i i think that's that's right jim that is still very much an issue and i think the report does refer to um you know the sort of game where people are avoiding blame as the kind of primary object uh rather than looking at what can be learned i think there's there's been some very high profile cases recently um and there are a couple of uh case studies within the report but i think of course it's a hugely emotive area um and uh one of the things i think that i got from this report is rushing in with blanket policies rushing in with what they refer to as kind of tick box approaches is often not the right uh kind of clinical um grounding for the way in which cases need to be dealt with so one of the examples that they give uh, uh a lot of universities recently have started to use the opt-in consent schemes uh to get student consent to share information but to do it as part of their registration process so very much a, i think anything done during registration is a tick box activity what they're saying is actually yeah by by definition but what they're saying as a group of clinical practitioners is that this really should be part of a considered discussion because not everybody comes from the same set of kind of family relationships that you know your normative assumption would be that they are supportive and um, actually I thought quite interesting they refer to the Caldecott principle which is to share the minimum necessary to provide safe care or satisfy other purposes um and 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 all of these things the approaches that they advocate require more time more resource and more joining up because actually some of the lack of information sharing that the report highlights is not with outside bodies it's with internal departments indeed there was one case i think that was quoted where they had they didn't even share information across the student services support team because they didn't have a proper case management system um so you know i think i think that probably there's a point here which is about it's not enough to just have a policy there needs to be worked through implementation reflection and learning upon that and i suspect most universities have got work to do there DK, the other thing I was uh, looking at when I when I read the report was this stuff about small 
providers. And, you know, I mean, you know, it, 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 I, I was thinking, because I was reading something else previous to it, I was thinking about, you know, places like Alra, you know, there's a long tail of small kind of relatively micro providers on the OFS register. There's no way they're going to have clinical staff that, you know, can can spark, you know, formal partnerships with the NHS and so on and so on and so on. Is that, you know, I mean, to what extent should this kind of stuff be universal or for a particular group of institutions? Because it's all very well saying there's a code of practice for HG, but I mean, it obviously isn't going to cover the whole of the sector. Uh, no, you're right. In an increasingly uh, uh, diverse sector, there's going to be increasingly uh, uh, different approaches to the way in which these small number of hugely uh, tragic situations are um, handled. You could also think about different modes of study. You could think, okay, how do you support, say, part-time students or, or short course students as opposed to full-time students? How do you support students that are on a placement? Um, and you know, this, um, the thing that strikes me that actually really comes through in this report is that the time to be coming out what, with what a university needs to do in the case of a student suicide or a potential student suicide. Um, is not when you are facing the problem for the first time. There's a great article back in the wonky of archives by a guy called Levi Pay that talks about who does what when a student, um, dies. And I mean, a, um, a large university, that's going to be six or seven students every year are going to die. There needs to be some kind of process in what you do, who you tell, who you find out exactly what you can tell other people from where the records are, the, the single source of truth, that needs to be sorted out in advance. And it doesn't matter if you're a, um, a tiny provider or a massive university, you need to have a basic understanding of what you would do in that circumstance. I don't think it necessarily matters that it needs to be the same across the whole sector. There should be a basic expectation of competence. There should be a basic expectation of care, but it is going to be different at different providers, but each provider needs to already be aware exactly what they're going to do under these circumstances. Laurie, a lot of this, you know, I mean, a lot of, you know, reports like this, you know, there the, 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 the are other reports about um, student safety and student welfare that, that, that also reflect on data sharing, GDPR, privacy, the appropriateness, you know, lots of this stuff about the ethics of data sharing floats around. And I don't, I don't get a clear sense of the extent to which that stuff is convenient excuse or genuine legal barrier. Do you I, have a sense? So I think there's two things about um, about that one is that is it an excuse after the fact that oh, we couldn't share that information and that's why it happened i think the other thing is that on a personal level if somebody discloses a mental health issue to you in an institution and you know you're there worrying about data sharing gdpr what am i allowed to share and sometimes when that happens and this is picked up in the report you know you can't have the, the, the student might not be in a fit set date to give you consent to actually share that information. So do you break confidentiality for the welfare of the student? And I don't know what the answer is to that because afterwards 
you know you might save the life of the student and then you might be thinking am i in trouble i don't know i think there's an awful lot of issues around you know when do i break confidentiality and these are mental health practitioners talking about it so these are people that consider and worry about confidentiality and they know all of the issues what happens when a student walks into the office of an administrator and says i'm feeling suicidal you know we need to we need to put things in place Talks to their talks to the PGR student that's yeah. running their seminar. We need yeah, to we need to actually yeah, yeah. have better CPD. But I think it's a wider issue about talking about mental health. You know, we need to be able to talk about mental health openly and not make it a taboo subject. Okay, uh, good stuff. Now uh, we've got an event on soon, and Mark has some details. Who should go to university, and why? What is social mobility these days anyway? And are we heading for a more joined-up tertiary education system in England? And across the UK? Join us in May for Access All Areas, a wonky event where we'll assess the current access and participation landscape and consider what we need to change in terms of outreach, information, advice, and guidance, partnerships and pathways between providers, and on course student support to sustain and grow education opportunity in the years ahead. We'll bring together policymakers and practitioners to work through the challenges, including the new RFS Director of Fair Access and Participation. John Blake and identify the things that will make the most difference to future students' ability to get in and get on. That's Access All Areas, Tuesday the 10th of May in London. Find out more at wonky.com slash events. See you there. And finally, Further and Higher Education Minister Michelle Donnellan has been upping the ante on in-person teaching. Selena, what's going on? Uh, Well, this is the silly story, isn't it? (laughs) Um, uh, We are recording this on the Thursday election day um, and I I, I think that's probably the the kind of relevance uh, because we can't really see beyond that. what, where, where the evidence is of, of, of this being a problem, and indeed in the, the, the one press article that I read that picked up on it, actually I couldn't get into the Telegraph one, but I read the, uh, the mail one, quite a lot of mail reading done this week in the aid of this podcast. Um, there, there is no specific university named, um, but Michelle's uh, Donnellan's problem is the continued insistence of top education chiefs um, with online learning. Uh, what they do mention is that Imperial had a graduation ceremony with students alone and no parents were invited. Um, but yeah, it's just nonsense. It's just, you just, you know, I, it's my same approach to parenting, really. Just, just ignore it. Just ignore it. It's not happening. And if I don't look at it and I don't hear it, it will just go away. D- D- DK, the, uh, the, the threat in a couple of the articles is that is putting boots on the ground, which is quite a phrase, putting boots on the ground uh, to work out what's going on here in May. Is, is that a thing? Well, as you know, I'm in uh, favour of um, bringing back the old QAA subject review. I don't think it means that, but I think um, our esteemed minister is thinking that the Office of Students would actually rock up to campus and would look at some empty lecture theatres and some um, lecturers all um, drinking uh, cups of tea as they sit at their laptops and think, well, this is a bad thing. Um, Can I I just interject, DK, and just point out that the... um, 
the boots on the ground of OFS would actually be around 700 boots if they all had two legs. I am conscious that we didn't manage to do yes, but does it correlate today? So that is your statistical nugget for the recording. Uh, thank you for that. Um, so there's not a lot of people in the OFS. It's obviously not going to happen apart from in the thing. These things largely happen by um, um, a snotty email or a phone call. That will continue to be the case. I want you to, to point to the Telegraph coverage in particular. Uh, the, 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 and this is one of those wonderful moments where the minister has written an op-ed, but it's not actually good enough to lead an actual story in the Telegraph. So it's got a little write-up at the top, which um, connects it to Sajid Javid telling NHS Trust to, to drop restrictions in hospitals, because really I can't think any, uh, of anything worse than hospitals making sure people don't get infected by illnesses. I mean, I think that's absolutely terrible. Uh, so it's all kind of wrapped up in that. It's all wrapped up in this, we must get back to normal things, whether or not normal was the good idea in the first place. The idea that um, students are crying out for lots of exposure to large lectures um, is maybe something that would bear further research. Um, but it's difficult to know, apart from the electoral thing and the um apart from the fact Michelle Donnellan likes to work to a script and she might not have noticed that in May this script might not be as relevant. Um I, it's, it's difficult to know precisely what they're trying to achieve. I also like that she's going to re um refer the issue to the competition and markets authority. Best of uh, luck with that Michelle. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that one. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean Laurie, look, I mean there is actually a really interesting and important set of questions here isn't there about you know where student engagement is at what the appropriate balance should be between online and in person you know th there are really important questions and I, and I just I don't know about you but I just despair that debates like this are conducted in a way that is just so sort of base and you know simplistic when there are really important complicated questions to get under the skin you know i have no i still don't really know what would be best for students in that kind of mix between online and in person i don't think interventions like this help it's it's the language hides the really serious issues and that's the thing that most upset me about this article and i the thing i'd like to think is that the minister might not have intended it that way but the daily mail wrote it that way because it's the thing that when I looked at the article, um, like Selena, I, I also read the comments underneath. And that, I never actually want to look at that part of the internet again and read the comments on a Daily Mail article. Um, because their impression about what higher education is, is, is just so depressing. It's about getting as many students as you can in a lecture theatre and working them for 12 hours a day. You know, they've never had it so easy. You know, that's the kind of comment you get. But of course, you're right. We need to be able to, like we do in higher education, look at the evidence. What's a good learning outcome? How did we achieve it? Most of the time, that might not be in a lecture theatre. Um, and when students say, I want to be back on campus, it seems to me that a lot of ministers and commentators are reading that as, I want to be back in a lecture theatre. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, I want to be back on campus. And that's for a whole range of reasons.
some of which have got nothing to do with being taught. Some of it might be that they live in poverty and they can get good broadband if they're actually in halls. Some of it might be that I can get a study space. Some of it could be that, hey, this is just me wanting to socialise again. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to Selena, Laurie, DK, everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen. And until next week, stay wonky. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,